I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in a quiet neighborhood in Baltimore. This episode, gonna jump on the bandwagon. I'm going to bring you my biggest pop cultural moments of the decade. Okay, so you've seen the post, the 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 tr- fad online or the trend online these days, which is to, you know, as we're closing out this decade, you know, folks posting pictures of what they look like, their very best picture uh, from 2010 versus their very best picture today um, or more recent photo. You know what I mean? Um, folks have been coming out with the top movies of the decade. Um you know what I mean? And song list, top albums. I looked at somebody, somebody's list had um, Beyonce's Lemonade as uh, like the quintessential album of the decade. And I agree. Um, Not because I've listened to that thing backward and forward, but because the cultural impact that it had um, just across the, the, the black woman diaspora uh, that maybe that doesn't sound right to you. But anyway, black women across the diaspora is what I should have said anyway. Um, and what it specifically meant to me in terms of, you know, the black spirituality that was expressed in the poetry and things like that. So, you know, um, I didn't I can't tell you that I listened to that thing backward and forward when it came out. I did not um, get a title subscription. And I'm so glad I didn't because. Whew, my how things just come right back around, huh? Um, anyhow, so yeah, so, but people had feelings because, you know, they had other albums in mind. Anyway, um, and then there were, like I said, there were top uh, movies of the decade, some of which I'm just like, who watched these films and why is this on this list? But, you know, everyone has their opinion. And so, you know, I just thought, I was thinking back um, on the decade for me and all the change that I experienced. Boy, did I, ooh, things happened. Life happened um, in good ways and then in, in sorrowful ways, you know, with loss of loved ones and, well, you know, career changes and things like that. Um, but I still feel like I came out on, I'm, I'm coming out on top in this decade because I'm, I'm learning some things that maybe it took took me a minute to get to, you know what I mean? And took even longer to realize that I needed to, you know, think about those things differently, think about situations differently. So anyway, so as a way to kind of reflect, but like reflect on things that were culturally relevant, um, I wanted to just talk about some of the biggest things that happened in the decade. Um, and I, it's, it, this is a kind of a combination of some things that I found on um, redbookmag.com, which I had never heard of before, but I did a Google search um, and I went through their list. But then also some of the things that were pivotal to me, again, a lot happened. And I live in Baltimore, so you already know um, a lot has happened. Um, One of the biggest things that happened that will just be forever immortalized um, in time, even though, you know, a lot of people still have feelings about it in terms of Okay, so this thing happened, but like, what did it really achieve Um, is the Marriage Equality Act passing um, June 26, 2015, um, which is ironically a day before my birthday. Um, And what a way to celebrate everyone, Um, you know, not everyone, but like giving giving rights that should never have 
not been allowed, I guess. Anyway, uh, to people, the Marriage Equality Act. Anyway, so, you know, the White House went, um, uh, had the um, queer flag colors. Um, you know, it was bathed in the queer flag colors on that evening, and it was very historic. And President Obama signed some stuff, and, you know, there were pictures and things like that. And I can remember, and I don't know if you remember, but uh, he was hosting, he was um, leading some sort of press conference. And there was, I can just remember him having an audience full of um, queer men and women, or queer people, queer people, excuse me, queer people. And all of a sudden, while he was, you know how... You know how they do, having their speech in front of their friendly audience talking about this particular thing that they are doing. And so he was doing just that in front of this audience. And then all of a sudden, I can remember vividly a trans woman whose name I have forgotten, but I promise you she's indigenous. I felt like she was indigenous. Can't call it, but I know you probably know what I'm talking about. Anyway, she um, got up and started expressing herself. And I can just remember that there were white presenting men who were probably gay you could assume were gay but you just don't know um but you understood what the topic was anyway so but there were no so regardless of whether or not they were gay it was white presenting men turn right around and essentially kind of shouted her down and I can remember and then even uh President Obama at the time said some sort of snarky remark it wasn't it wasn't overtly disrespectful, but it was dismissive. And I can remember folks feeling folks either seeing people respond on Twitter or hearing in that clip. And I know you can find it. You can find it now. Um, hearing people say in that clip, um, stop being disrespectful. This is a good thing right now or some junk like that. Sit down. You know what I mean? Trying to silence her. Um, and I didn't know what to make of it at the time. And full disclosure, I was still, I, I wouldn't say that I was homophobic, but I was definitely still very much transphobic um, in that there was a time, and excuse me if this, I don't mean to offend anyone, but I felt at the time that I was still coming to terms with whether, with how to process um, someone's identity as being trans. It It wasn't, it, it wasn't registering to me then the way it registers registers to me now that this is this person's identity. It doesn't matter, like, accept it. That's that. Like, what, what are we talking about? What are we still talking about? Anyway, but I didn't have that thought then. I was still thinking binary. I was still thinking, oh, you can be gay, but like, what are you talking about? Do you know what I mean? Like, what what is this trans business? Anyway, so... I didn't know what to make of that comment. And a piece of me was like, oh, you being disrespectful. But then there was another piece of me saying, mm, this doesn't look right. Like the optics were all wrong. Number one, the optics were off. That's number one. Clue number two was that I could, I recognized it in the moment, even in my transphobia, I recognized. And again, I didn't even recognize me to be transphobic. I just didn't think I didn't think there was a conversation to be had. Do you get what I mean? Anyway, I know you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, but so even in me not really recognizing a person, a trans, a person's trans identity, I still recognized that this person was being shouted down and I knew that was wrong. Do you know what I mean? So it, it took me a minute to try to come back around and then ironically, just go with me, ironically, um, 
I'm gonna just say her name, but this is the this is the last time I'm gonna say it. Um, Rachel Dolezal helped me to understand in not in recognizing that you cannot be transracial. I recognize that you could be transgender. That and and I, that sounds the, it sounds so stupid, right? It sounds like what are you talking about? But like I promise you that I learn things by just that's how I learn. I don't know what to tell you, but I learned. I it, I finally was able to wrap my hand my my brain around. Um, someone's trans identity or someone identifying as trans while I was also deconstructing the idea that you cannot be transracial. Um, anyway, so I finally got there, but the seed that germinated, the, the little seed that was planted was that demonstration. So it was like, we're getting ready. It was either the the conversation or the press conference that was taking place this yeah, yeah, it was like a conversation that was happening. This announcement happened like the day of or leading up to what was about to happen. His historic signing uh, of the uh, marriage equality um, uh, act. But um, oh, where was I going? Oh, anyway. Yeah. So it happened. It was leading up to that. And, you know, I was thinking, OK, so, you know, I was still trying to reconcile this thing that's good with this thing right in the middle of it that's like, hmm, I don't know what to make of this. What is this? What is happening here? But like I said, I finally got there and it took RD to get me there. That whole fiasco with RD to get me there. Anyway, so that was a pivotal thing that happened this decade. Again, it meant a lot of great things for, I mean, we're still fighting. Um, Folks who are um, queer folks are still fighting for marriage equality in certain states. We already know that. Um, we know, shoot, immediately after the bill was uh, passed, um, the act was passed, that that one uh, white woman in that southern state, was it, Car- it was one of the Carolinas. It was either one of the Carolinas or one of the Virginias, probably just Virginia, not West Virginia, but like Virginia. Anyway, she did that, that clerk, you remember that, you remember that woman, that mousy hair, um, that clerk talking about she not going to do her job and, and dummy. Anyway, um... So, you know, it happened immediately that people were getting pushback for something that was federal law. But anyway, so so it was like there was this really interesting thing, this good thing that on the face of it was, you know, this thing that was that had passed. But there was still a whole community that was just like, that's cute for you. But like, I'm still not able to be who I am. It's like open season on me. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't have my, I, I, I don't feel protected. It's cool that you, you know, oh, and here's the other piece. I'm sorry, I'm all over the place. Here's the other piece. One of the things that I'm, you know, the, one of the reasons that Marsha's plate is so appealing to me, um, because not just because it's a voice that I don't necessarily have regularly in my life with trans people coming into my life. Um, but that they talk about how, I think at one point they talked about, or at least Diamond, the uh, creator of the show, I guess. Um, Diamond talked about how, you know, a lot of queer but uh, cisgendered uh, men were like, men, well, men, just cisgendered people who weren't queer were like, okay, well, cool, you should be good. We we got this, so we should be good, right? And they and then they weren't really fighting to support other queer people like trans folks. Um, and so, yeah. And so, you know, I don't remember when 
Marsha's play began, but I'm quite sure that one of the genesis of the that um, podcast was that, you know, I'm tired of feeling isolated and expecting to be treated, even in this, even in the queer family, treated with the same dignity and respect, you know, we've got to go for hours. So anyway, um, so that instant, that, that press conference or whatever that was, that conversation kind of was planted a seed that allowed me to open up my mind and renew my renew my mind on just what a, the ally the person that I thought I was going to be the ally that I know I needed to be and w- kind of walk in that and I'm still learning I'm still trying to walk in it and I'm still going to make mistakes but please charge that to my brain not my heart because my intent is to continue to grow and help those around me grow um so that we can be more inclusive and truly be and I, you know, I truly be the spiritual people that we know that we are, like truly walk in this thing, which is another whole other conversation. I feel like my spiritual walk has changed significantly too in over this decade. But anyway, I don't want to get super duper deep, but I do want to talk about these very pivotal things that happened this decade. And yeah, I hope it will spark some thought in yourself if you have your own little podcast like I do. Um, yeah, share it on, you know, maybe you be inspired to do the same thing on yours, um, or just engage in conversations. This is the end of year, you know, end of year is the time for cocktail parties and house parties and, and, and staff meeting, uh, staff parties and all of that stuff. So, you know, might be interesting to talk about, to, to do a poll of what, you know, as a way to pass the time, kind of talk about what were the pivotal moments in the decade for y'all. So anyway, all right. So, um, I'm going to go over these few moments. Um, they're in no particular order. Uh, well, they are in order. They're in numerical order from year to year. But outside of that, they're not ranked in importance. They're just ranked by year. Okay, so before I begin, I just realized that these top... Um, moments in the within the last ten uh, uh, ten decades, the last decade really are concentrated on pop culture moments that happened in the United States. So I know that there are folks who listen to me who are not in the United States, and uh, just for warning, these are directly related to the United States. But then some of these have far-reaching impacts, like you know, and you'll see what I mean in a second. But I just wanted to put that out there. So in the United States, um, and, and I'm going to go from 2010 and I'm going to come up. Um, so one of the first impactful, definitely had an impact on our community, whether or not it was influential, well, it was probably influential, but like it was, I find them annoying, but gender reveal parties, they literally came out of nowhere. It was one of the decade's most influential in, in, inventions um, that basically came from Instagram. Um and from what, and again, I, I got these, I got some of these from Redbook, uh, redbookmag.com. And so what they're saying is that it kind of, it, it launched, it, it came, people began to use Instagram as a way to advertise their um, gender reveal party. So it's not 100% clear if it absolutely started in 2010, but that's when we first have a record of folks talking about it in, en masse. So maybe... You know, they weren't necessarily sharing those um, 
invites and videos and all that nonsense on Facebook, but definitely Instagram. Um, and so, you know, the Instagram itself, again, launched in October 2010. And um, it's basically been so the app itself has been so ingrained in our culture that over the past 10 years, years revealing your upcoming baby's gender has become um, a shared spectacle. Um, gender reveal parties have surged in recent years and are now as normalized as the baby shower itself. And that is so real. I cannot tell you how many invitations I have received in the last couple of years, I'll say two, that are as nice and as um, formal uh, for the gender reveal as if it were the baby shower. Now, I know that folks share my opinion that I'm about to say, so I'm, I'm, I don't feel any way about what I'm gonna say. I'm not coming to your baby shower if you invite me to your gender reveal because the expectation has come to be that I'm going to bring some gifts for you um, and, and take part in the charade or the, the game um, in the gender reveal. I actually loathe gender reveals. I think they're dumb. I think they are. Yeah, I can't think of a more. Uh, uh, I can't think of a better term to use a more. Um, oh, I cannot think of the word. See, look, look how it takes me down. Anyway, um, yeah, gender re real parties are dumb because at the end of the day, you are assuming that the you are telling you are essentially saying that because of the genitals that my child has, this is how they are going to. That's this is how who they're going to identify as, right? And you can call this philosophy new age if you want to, but what we know about identity is that you form your identity. Nobody tells you your identity. You form it. Nobody told me I was straight. Nobody told me that I was a straight uh, woman. I told myself, it's how I felt, it's how I woke up in the morning. And again, it's taken me a long time to get to this place and I've had to listen, um, especially when I thought I knew everything, I had to listen. And so this is where I'm at right now. And so I really think gender reveal parties are antiquated, even though there are a new phenomenon in this decade, they're antiquated. And, and I apologize if I offended anybody who likes gender reveal parties, I do not. Um, I can't tell you I've been invited to several. I can't tell you how many I've been to. I can tell you I've been to none um, in this recent year because I don't believe in them. I think they're, I think they're silly because you are, you are professing a gender of your child that you don't even know if they will identify as that when they get older. So, um, but you know, invite me to your birth, your uh, your baby shower. I'll I'll come to that. Um, okay, so that was a big deal. And then, and I'm, and, and I apologize if it sounds like I'm reading because I'm actually reading. Um, so anyway, just go with me. So the next one is something that I um, thought it was pretty impactful for me, and definitely had a huge impact on Black culture, definitely the in the United States, but then I would venture to say also abroad, especially in the African diaspora. I think it had an impact. Um, and you can hear it in our music. You can hear it in the conversations that we have, certain um, times of the year, certain movies that we watch, um, you know, just in certain discussions about recovery even, and even um, identity. 
um, of, of recent uh, months, and you'll see what I'm saying in a minute, but we were um, impacted very much by Whitney Houston's death in this decade. Um, and so just backing up, so Prince Rogers Nelson died on April 21st, 2016, right? And Aretha Franklin died on April 16th, 2018. While in the wake of both of their deaths, there was lots of controversy. So Prince's death by opioid overdose and the drama with his estate and Miss Retha and the fact that she had no will at all. And, but even something else that was a big controversy was that in her funeral and her home going, um, some of the mess that some of those, just the weirdness that some of those uh, misogynistic pre preachers um, engaged in, that one in particular that grabbed, what's that girl's name? Ariana Grande in that weird, creepy way that weird, creepy men do. Um, anyway, so even with the controversy of those, neither of those caused more drama and had more of a lasting impact than Whitney Houston's death. And now I, I, that might be a little controversial, but think about it. So on February 11th, 2012, Houston was found unconscious in her suite, uh, suite 434 at the Beverly, uh, Beverly Hilton Hotel, submerged in her bathtub. Beverly uh, Hills paramedics arrived at approximately 3.30 p.m., found Houston un unresponsive, and performed CPR. Houston was pronounced dead at 3.55, um, and it was later determined that she died from heart disease and cocaine use. And the toxicology report found that, excuse me, at the time of her death, Houston had Benadryl, Xanax, and weed, weed and Flexeril. I don't know what the heck Flexeril is. I didn't even bother to look it up, but I know it's a drug. And she had all of those things in her system at the time of her death. And why I'm bringing that up is because in the black community, I know for the last two decades, what we know is that Whitney Houston, shoot, the, when she, from the time that she was a teen, right up until her passing, Whitney Houston was revered as a powerhouse singer. Okay. She was a staple. Um, in, in many, like she was a, a figure, a household name in many black households across the diaspora, for sure, in the United States. Um, and she just had a cultural impact, right? And so when she, we, we saw that 2020 interview with Diane Sawyer, where she was clearly under the influence, clearly. Um, we've heard radio interviews with Wendy Williams, her inter radio interviews with Wendy Williams, seen um, her photos and the paparazzi when she was clearly going through it. She was either detoxing or she was, um, you know, she was either coming down or she was going back up on her um, whatever her drug of choice was. So and there was a lot of controversy because we were like, oh, shoot. You know, Bobby and his bad self, he did this to her. He made her turn to this. This is see how he do, see how he did her, you know? And so I can remember growing up thinking, oh, Whitney Houston is so awesome. But I can also remember hearing that Bobby Brown turned her bad. Basically, that was kind of the sentiment. And so, you know, when she passed away from a drug overdose and she essentially drowned in her bathtub, um, that was heartbreaking for a lot of folks. And I can remember on black radio stations when I would go from one city to the next, um, certainly on Twitter, on Facebook, um, you know, when I'm at holiday parties with my people 
or just parties in general with my people, Whitney Houston coming on and somehow or another, a conversation about her and her legacy sparked after her passing, right? And then of course, uh, a couple of years later, you know, just watching um, Bobby Christina, her daughter with Bobby Brown and her spiral out of control and then her untimely passing too, you know, we have been impacted not just by, not just by um, Whitney's passing, but then also, you know, um, her daughter's passing and the legacy of kind of the, just the issues and the trauma that they dealt with and, you know, still trying to figure out what, how we feel about Bobby go waffling back and forth between whether or not we thought he was actually the person that caused her to quote unquote spiral or whether or not he was just a broken person too, quote unquote, broken person too. And they were just two broken people that, that found love with each other and were just trying to figure their own lives out. But at the same time, they were in, they were in love with each other in the way that they could. And remembering in her funeral, her homegoing, um, that he was not allowed, Bobby was not allowed to, he was either not allowed or he was not in the funeral, the service, you know, and the controversy about that. So there's that. Then, you know, flash forward. And in um, 2018, we became outraged. Everybody who loved Whitney um, became outraged and just frustrated and talking about her all over again because um, Pusha, T, Pusha T's Daytona al album um, was released and caused such an uproar because they had a, the album cover was essentially a photo, was a photo of, um, from Houston's bathroom um, in 20, uh, 2006 after what it was clearly a drug bender that she had gone on. Um, and people felt that that was tasteless and it was tasteless. There's no two ways about it. Like, what were you, like, I know you're trying to be tough and I know you're trying to be a gangster or whatever and you're trying to project this particular image, but like, you and, and, I'm going to say his name one time and then I'm not going to say it ever again. You and Kanye bought, pay buku dollars to get that, uh, to get that photo because you wanted to cause controversy and shame on you for doing that. Because again, you already know how we felt about her and you did that specifically to get people interested in Daytona Pusha T's album. So shame on you for doing that publicity. Ugh, ugh, hound. Anyway, so so then there was, so there was that right in 2018. And then we learned this year, and I know I talked about this in other episodes, but then we learned this year, um, that her best friend, Robin from, we learned from her best friend, Robin, um, that Whitney was at least bisexual. She, yeah, she, she was probably bisexual. She certainly had a bisexual relationship, um, an intimate relationship. I should say an intimate relationship with Robin herself in the early days of their, uh, relationship together but then that ended and then they were just really close friends um and then we learned from robin that you know essentially she was forced to hide that part of her life um leaving many people to wonder if that was the reason why she turned to drugs and alcohol to cope with the fact that she couldn't truly be who she was and also be a star in the entertainment industry and i think the thing that really just messes with me is that I listened to an episode of, oh shoot, it's a podcast. 
It's a podcast whose name I cannot remember right now. Um, but anyway, there was a po- uh, he this the producer of the show did this. He does stories over famous musicians and artists and things like that. And it's a lot of sex, drugs and rock and roll, right? Well, he did a story over her. And a lot of it is dramatized. It's a podcast, but it's a dramatized sort of podcast. So it's based in truth, but he adds drama to it um, and storytelling to it. And so something that I learned that may or may not be true is that um, Clive Davis, who, you know, you know, Clive Davis and his relationship with Whitney Houston, um, he snatched her up early because he knew he, she was going to be a star. And sure enough, she was a star um, and made lots of money for him over the years. But he was the one that said you he and his mother, obvious or her mother, um, Sissy Houston, obviously very homophobic, um, certainly used the Bible as a way to say, you know, you can't live this lifestyle because it's not accepted. You 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 know, this isn't who you are. This can't be who you are. Um, cause you can't be, you can't be gay and be a child of God. You can't do that. That's what sissy said. Right. Or that is at least what was, what a lot of people, even some Christians believe today, which I do not. Um, but a lot of Christians believe that you can't be gay and truly be a Christian. And so that was kind of pushed down her throat. But then the other piece was that Clive Davis said, oh, you will not be able to be successful and be this crossover star and be a lesbian. Oh no, that's not going to work. Let's quell these, let's crush these um, rumors right now. So, you know, do what you got to do, but you're not going to, we, we got to clean you up. We got to get you with some men and things like that. And then come to find out that Clive Davis himself is, I don't, I don't know that he's gay, but he's definitely bi and he's got a partner, a male partner right now. And so it's just frustrating because oftentimes oppressed people end up oppressing other people. And it's really sad because in this instance, is, could this be a reason why she was prone to taking to drugs and alcohol to cope? Because she felt like she could not be herself and she needed to cope with the fame and stardom and the fact that she was in a, for the most part, a toxic relationship with Bobby. Do you know what I mean? And just, and probably a toxic relationship with her mother, if you want to be honest. Like as as much as her mother loved her in the way that she could, and I know Whitney probably very much loved her mother. Like again, very toxic, I'm sure. So anyway, her passing. First off, Whitney was just a huge mark on my life, or not a mark, but a huge figure in my life. But her passing really did kind of show me that over, like she she meant a lot to a lot of people, and that we are still talking about her in different ways today, still. And we're engaging in conversations, different conversations about uh, sexual identity and um, just, you know, having better, more informed conversations about um, recovery and things like that as it relates to these stars. I'm I'm not saying because of her, but I'm thinking, you know, she's a good example of why we do need to stop criminalizing people who have, uh, are a, addicted to um, who are in recovery or who are working towards recovery, right? So anyway, um, so her passing was a big thing. Um, The Black Lives Matter movement, which again, was not something that Red Book Mag mentioned, but certainly something that I thought was pretty pivotal, especially because I live in Baltimore. Um, so in 2013, the movement began with the use of the hashtag 
Black Lives Matter on social media after the acquittal of George Zimmerman, which I did not, I didn't put one and two together. But yeah, that was right. Um, in the shooting death of African-American teen uh, uh, Trayvon Martin in February 2012, Black Lives Matter became nationally recognized for its street demonstrations following the 2014 deaths of two, African, uh, two black folk. I hate the term African-American. I don't prefer it. I prefer black American. Um, but this is what I gleaned from Wikipedia. Anyway, so but uh, so Black Lives Matter became nationally recognized for its street demonstrations following the 2014 deaths of, of two black Americans. Um, Michael Brown, y'all remember Michael Brown, uh, resulting in protests and unrest in Ferguson and um, Eric Gardner. Now, everybody, every, people remember Michael Brown. They remember that because he, unfortunately, his remains laid untouched in the street for hours and there were pictures of it at least I saw pictures on social media and I'm sure I'm not the only one but then also Eric Gardner now everybody across the diaspora even if you're not in the diaspora everybody had an opportunity to see that that video where he was in that chokehold it has been you it has been seen or showed or posted time and time again even I saw it this year it was posted in reference to um, someone, a police officer being acquitted or something like that. I can't remember what it was in reference to, but I remember seeing it again this year. That's how impactful this movement is and how it began. And I mean, let's be clear, people of color, specifically black folk and poor people have been um, on the business end of the law for quite some time. And being abused in that same place for a long time, but it's with the advent of social media and Instagram and and our, us using um, Twitter, we can spread information more quickly and share things more quickly. So uh, Black Lives Matter movement definitely has benefited from the advent and, and popular widespread use of social media. Okay, so in 2014, we had the uh, untimely deaths of Michael Brown and Eric Gardner. And then two years later in 2015, after numerous deaths of other defenseless black people at the, um, at the hands of reckless police officers, Freddie Gray happened right here in Baltimore, triggering days of riots in, an, in over-policed neighborhoods. And I've talked about this before, but there are particular neighborhoods in Baltimore that are over-policed. Um, Sandtown Winchester is one of them. And it's so sad because that used to be a pre, uh, premier neighborhood for black folk in the community because Baltimore City is a red line district. Google redlining and you'll know what I'm talking about. Anyway, um, it's a practice. Blockbusting, blockbusting and redlining was a pra- it's, a, it's a thing. Um, blockbusting, not so much. That was something done back in the 60s. But redlining, you could argue that that is still aspects of that is still happening. Anyway, so we have these particular over, particularly over police neighborhoods in Baltimore city and where, um, you know, Sandtown Winchester is one of those over policed uh, neighborhoods. And so, you know, I can remember, um, I can remember in the days after the incident that I, one of my church members posted on her Facebook page, a picture, a self, the cell phone picture that I'm sure everybody has seen at this point, a cell phone video of Freddie being dragged out by uh, police officers, by uh, dragged out of the building by police officers. Um, and 
yeah, that that stayed with me. That has stayed with me since then, because I, I, again, I can remember I saw it on Facebook and then it spread like wildfire. And then the riots happen, but in particular areas. And um, I can remember there was a city ordinance where, you know, there was a curfew, but I can remember going out anyway. Because you're not going to stop me from going out in my, you know, me being me. And then come to find out it wasn't, it wasn't um, a curfew. It wasn't a curfew in every neighborhood. It was a curfew in those over-policed neighborhoods again. See how that works? So you come in and you cause ruckus. You get mad because people get, get frustrated who don't have resources. You, there are no jobs. There are no opportunities there. You turned, you, you got rid of uh, many of the after school um, and out of school time opportunities. So they get mad. There's something like this happens. They get mad. They get frustrated. They don't think anything is going to happen. So they, they retaliate. And you, in turn, show up in force and over police them even more. That was a joke. That curfew was a joke. And that's why Stephanie ain't in office no more. That's why uh, uh, Commissioner Bass isn't, isn't uh, our commissioner anymore. Because come on, like that's that's how you respond. That's how you do. Anyway, um, so yeah. And, and what we know is that other things have happened. We also know that the Black Lives Matter moniker was co-opted and 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 it switched around to all lives matter and blue lives matter and all that foolishness um, because people are, are, you know, they just have to be obtuse and hardheaded um, and not get what the hashtag means. And, you know, and then we had, um, of course, we had Colin Kaepernick um, kneeling in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. And we're still dealing with that today. So, again, we can just like with... Um, just like with gender reveals, um, we could attribute uh, we can accre- we can attribute a lot of the success of the Black Lives Matter movement and just generally speaking this this the, the anti you can say the Antifa uh, rallies and and things like that you can attribute a lot of that to the advent of social media and being able to spread information widely and quickly and be and, and allowing people to be able to organize in a quick way. And I'm going to take a break because I got a few more uh, coming up. All right. So next up, we're moving into 2014. And the next one is um, Streaming Killed the Video Star. So some of these titles are crap. Um so in 2014, 2014 marked the final year for many video store chains, including Blockbuster Video. Um, the massive video giant filed for bankruptcy and shuttered nearly all of its locations as DVD sales plummeted. By then, Netflix had just introduced a new way to consume content, streaming. And pause, I can remember this because we went from... They, they, they introduced streaming, but you could still get DVDs. And so I think a large part of the reason why Blockbuster was no more, became no more, um, and even Redbox barely even exists today um, at your local Wawa <laughs> or Royal Farms, is um, because, you know, we, they, they knew what they were doing. They said, okay, well, we'll, in, we'll introduce the streaming thing to you, but we'll still let you get your DVDs. And then slowly but surely, they pulled away the amount of DVDs you could have until you had to pay extra just to have DVDs. I don't even know if the DVD feature for Netflix is still available because nobody uses it. Nobody that I know uses it. 
So anyway, I think they were very smart and strategic in doing that. They knew that they had to wean people away from getting DVDs because, again, Blockbuster existed for a reason. But, um, yeah, so in, in introducing streaming and then slowly, excuse me, pulling away the DVDs, they, um, they ushered in a new era and, of streaming and forever changed the entertainment industry. Um, and again, I'd mentioned that even the Irishman, um, you know, Martin Scorsese, you know, talking about the fact that, bemoaning the fact that, you know, he misses the days when everybody, you know, stayed up really late or, or not really late, but like they planned their days around going to the movie to see this premiere and you could not see this movie anywhere else. But those days are gone, honey. Those days are gone. We will go to the box office if we we will go to the movie theater if there's something like fancy or some special showing of something. Um, but by and large, it's Netflix all day. It's it's streaming all day. All right. And so the next thing in 2015, again, this is from uh, redbookmag.com. Um, and it says meeting Caitlyn Jenner. And I'm going to add a little caveat after I read this, but it's whether it says whether you're a fan of Kardashian Jenner clan or not, their impact on pop culture is undeniable. But when Caitlyn Jenner, then Bruce Jenner, announced on television during an April 2015 Diane Sawyer interview that she was transgender, it was more than just a reality show storyline. It catapulted transgender issues into the mainstream, igniting a progressive cultural switch, a shift. The former Olympian introduced the world to Caitlyn Jenner or to Caitlyn on July on the July 2015 cover of Vanity Fair. Now, I take issue with this because while I think that the Vanity Fair um, cover and the 2020 uh, interview or at least the, the interview with Diane Sawyer certainly introduced the idea of being transgender um, to the masses. What we know is that there were several transgender people in our culture through the years that were celebrities that were uh, quote unquote stealth. Nobody knew their business. Um, and in our, you know, just in our communities, I, I know that there were, uh, I cannot think of their names right now, but there were one or two um, models who in the 80s had, they were on the cover of Jet Magazine, um, be, uh, yeah, yeah, Jet Magazine, which is a hugely popular uh, periodical for black for the black community here in the United States, right there on the cover, uh, you know, magazine Jet Girl of the Week. Um, th- so there were there were trans uh, women, and they're probably trans men, but I, I was introduced to trans women a long time ago, but I didn't know that they were trans. Um, and so yeah, there have been trans figures throughout history, and certainly throughout the last three decades off and on, but they were not allowed to be themselves and they were quieted down if they did want to be themselves. Um, and then, you know, there are trans activists. Again, remember I talked about, um, even though the Marriage Equality Act passed in uh, 2015, you know, there was that prominent activist whose name I can't remember, um, definitely disrupted things during his little cute little old speech talking about what about us you you really playing games right now um and so there were people who were making a scene and making a fuss because that's what you got to do um in our society to be heard and so they've been making a fuss for a minute but i do and there were people of color too let's be clear the people of color who advocating for the rights of everyone but specifically advocating for their rights to just be just be allowed to be. And what we know is that Caitlyn Jenner still very much holds very right wing conservative, conservative political views um, and has made some controversial statements about the family and what is a family, right? Um, and so 
you know, there's a lot of folks that don't feel like she is an ally um, in the, for the trans community. And I, ha I can't speak to one way or another whether or not I believe that she is. What I know is that there were other people apart from Caitlyn Jenner who were making waves and trying to make things happen um, for uh, trans people of color, uh, trans people period. And they often were people, trans people of color. So indigenous and, and black, um, Asian, do you know what I mean? Like they were, they were trans people of color who were making waves, but I do agree. The one that caught the most attention was Caitlyn Jenner. All right. And then I mentioned this, but I'll say it again, uh, 2016, uh, kneeling protests. So starting in 2016, uh, Colin Kaepernick, who was at the time the quarterback for, uh, the 49ers selected, um, he and selected football um, football players across the uh, from different ball clubs across the country um, began taking a knee during uh, pregame U.S. national anthem celebrations um, as a peaceful form of protest against police brutality and racism plaguing the country. Um, and I added this little note. It was a nod to the Black Lives Matter movement. Like, I really don't know why Red Book Mag just was so scared to talk about Black Lives. Well, I do know. But anyway, they did just refused to talk about Black Lives Matter. So here we are. So anyway, um, yeah, so the act continues to stir controversy amid the heated political climate today for no reason, none whatsoever. Okay, the next thing I wanna talk about real quick is the Me Too movement. So it began in the fall of 2017. In the fall of 2017, an explosive New York Times expose revealed the allegation, uh, the alleged details behind acclaimed film producer Harvey Weinstein's predatory behavior. Actress Rose McGowan bravely shared her story of assault involving the Hollywood Titan, which led to a domino effect of other women speaking out uh, against sexual assault and harassment, ushering in transform um, the transformative Me Too era. Now, what this thing completely omits is that Tarana Burke, a civil rights activist from the Bronx, a black woman, and, uh, she was from the Bronx, New York, is from the Bronx, New York, and is the founder of the new, uh, the Me Too movement. She began using the hashtag in 26, uh, 2006 um, on social media to raise awareness uh, of the prevalence, uh, of the, the pervasiveness, rather, pervasiveness of sexual abuse and assault in society. So Tarana Burke, know her name. Um, okay. Then, uh, there was the Oscar. Uh, so that was in 2017. The Oscar mix up though, um, is the next one. And so again, I'm going to add my little caveat. So, um, during the 2017 live telecast of the 89th Academy Awards, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway were given the wrong envelope when it came time to announce the winner for best picture. After a slight hesitation on Beatty's part, the wrongly, they wrongly announced La La Land had won. But as the film stars and producers gathered on stage to accept the award, the Academy's crew members rushed forward with the correct envelope. In a very shocking on-air moment, La La Land's jo uh, Jordan Howerowitz gracefully announced the correct winner was, in fact, Moonlight and handed over the Oscar. Now, the other piece of this, that the, again, Red Book Mag, y'all must not have people of color who are writing for you because the other piece of this was the year prior, um, Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith, uh, mostly Jada Pinkett, led the charge for the whole Oscar, the, uh, boycotting the Oscars, um, being too white and a lot of other uh, Academy, you know, the Academy Awards. Um, these big, yeah, yeah, the Oscars. Yeah, Oscars so white is was the hashtag. 
Um, and so a lot of folks were boycotting the Oscars because they continued to nominate films with there were few people of color and if they were people of color, um, they were in secondary roles and not leading roles. And so people were fed up with it. And I know that Jada Pickett Smith took a lot of flack for that in the, um, you know, when she came, she did that, but it was, there was a reason. And arguably the very next year, you pull this stunt. And again, it was a mix up. I get it. But it was, it's like La La Land was an impactful movie. And I actually had an opportunity to meet, um, what's his name? Andre. Dag, I can't call his name, but the guy who, uh, Andre, which is, ooh, how can I describe what he was? Anyway, I had an opportunity to meet one of the actors from Moonlight um, at um, Afropunk in New York last year. And it was awesome to meet them and, so, and meet him. And it just kind of reminded me. I, the only thing that I said to him was like, I'm a fan of you. I really appreciated your work. And Moonlight, it was beautiful. Um, and anyway, so... So yeah, so like it was an impactful movie to the black community. It was one of the first times in a major way that black sexuality, especially black male sexuality was talked about in a way that wasn't kind of exploitative. You know what I mean? It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't exploitative is the best way I can describe it. And you know, a lot of people got behind that film and a lot of people still ride for that film because I am one of those people. And so for this moment to kind of, in a way, scar the fact that it was the best picture for that year is kind of, and it deservedly so is kind of like messed up. Um, the next thing in 2018, and we're rounding the corner now, 2018, February 16th, a day that will go down in infamy. Black Panther was released. The film, the movement, Wakanda forever. Do you know what I mean? Like it was something. It was a, it was a movie. And actually, you know, I was one of the crew that, that uh, watched it before the 16th, okay? Because I needed to get my tickets on. I needed to watch those pre-screenings. So, so yeah, like it had majority black cast. It had old favorites, new favorites. Do you know what I mean? Lupita Nyong'o, Angela Bassett, um, fill in the, the Chadwick Boseman, let's be real. Do you know what I mean? Um, Creed, whose name I can't call, Michael something. Michael something. You know who I'm talking about, Creed. Pretty self. Anyway, um... You know, it was a movement. And even though there were flaws with some of the arguments uh, that were made by um, Warmonger, what's his name? T'Challa's enemy. Oh, I can't remember his name. Um, but, um, you know, it sparked a lot of conversation and a lot of people were, thought, you know, some Hotep inspiration as well. But nevertheless, it was a cultural movement. People are still talking about it today. I can't wait for Black Panther 2 to come out because I'm going to be watching it. And oh, by the way, the next time that I see Storm, she better be chocolatey brown and beautiful. And somebody mentioned, I think it was uh, Kid Fury on the read, that um, the woman who plays Belquist from uh, American Gods could make a bad storm. And I want that in my life. I want it so bad. Anyway, but we're not talking about storm. We're not talking about American gods. We're talking about Black Panther. Black Panther was everything. And I, I watch it on occasion, even now on Netflix, duh. And it was uh, just an awesome movement that we still feel um, today. 
Okay. Um, all right. Just three more things to talk about. So the next thing I'm going to talk about is something that I avoided because I hated the fact that everybody was talking about it. But nevertheless, I can't deny its cultural impact. Um, and that was the, the, the wedding of Harry and Meghan Markle um, and the royal wedding. Harry Windsor, whatever his name is, and then Meghan Markle. Um, so, and the Red Book Mag has it uh, saying, is, uh, describes the event as not since Grace Kelly has an American actress married into royalty. The Suits television starlet wed Harry, Duke of Sussex, on May 19, 2018. And the eyes of the world watched as Markle walked herself down the aisle at St. George's Chapel, marking a contemporary generation of independent royals. So again, they don't have no black people on their staff because the other piece of that was this was a black woman. She is, she very much embraces her black uh, woman identity, her biracial identity, but nevertheless, she's also a feminist. And so you, she, you had her mother sitting in the pews on her side, locked in all, nose ring in her, no, you know, nose ring in all, just being blackity black, black, but nevertheless, you know, marrying into this family and being a part of this moment. And there's, you know, that now there's a conversation to be had about how many uh, black people did your uh, family own, uh, royal people. But nevertheless, this was a cultural moment and everybody and their mama and grandmama too were talking about this while I was desperately trying to avoid it because I just wanted to. Um, but it happened to come out the day of Preakness that year. And so I was like, well, shoot, you're talking about horse racing or you're talking about um, Meghan Markle and their wedding. So anyway, but I can't deny that it was a cultural, it was culturally significant. She had a black choir, a blackity black choir that was up there just singing down. Um, all the people were there and it was great. Uh, I heard, cause I still haven't seen that video and I don't want to of the nuptials because I don't care. But anyway, it was a culturally significant uh, moment in the 2018s. Okay. Um, okay, so now we're moving to this year. So I've talked about this definitely, but I'll just, so I'll just breeze past it a little bit. Um, so on January 3rd, 2019, filmmaker and music critic Dream Hampton released a six part documentary series on Lifetime exposing legendary singer R. Kelly and his alleged sex crimes, as told by some of his alleged victims, and the manipul and, and detailed the manipulative tactics he used to create a system of protection around himself. Now that's something I added because again, Red Book Mag clearly doesn't have black folks behind the helm because this was cult culturally significant of this decade. Where, uh, it, wow. So right on the heels of Me Too, but like in a different way, like right? Like in so many different ways that it's hard for me to describe right now without going out on a tangent. So just go back to my episode that I did um, maybe the following week called Surviving R. Kelly. It's literally just called Surviving R. Kelly. And I can talk about my connection to R. Kelly and the just, you know, my mindset at the time when I was in college um, uh, about him and that, um, that uh, tape of him abusing an underage girl and all of that uh, for my feelings about that. But um, all right, and the last thing I wanna talk about before I close this thing out is the college admissions scandal of this year. Um, and we're still talking about that today. Um, but in the spring of 2019, news broke that FBI had, the FBI had uncovered a massive college admissions scam where wealthy parents essentially bought their children's way into elite schools. 
Under Operation Varsity Blues, it was discovered that beloved t- television actress Lori Loughlin, Full House, and Felicity Huffman, Desperate Housewives, were among those involved in one of the largest college admission rings in history. Um, and, you know, we know that Lori uh, Loughlin is still going through her foolishness because she um, wanted to plead not guilty because she swore she, was not, she wasn't guilty. And then Felicity Huff- Huffman pled guilty, was sentenced and, and, and put in prison and then swiftly got out, right? For good behavior or whatever. Because she did what she was supposed to do. She was contrite. She showed that she was contrite, even though if she wasn't or what, you know, was or wasn't. She did the she did what she was supposed to do. It looked the way it needed to. And Lori Lachlan and her silly self still out here playing. Um, anyway, so yeah, those were the pivotal moments for me of the decade that stood out to me. And like I said, like, you know, do, if you have a, a podcast or you're at a party or whatever um, here in the next week or so, I encourage you to start um, having these conversations with your people, your friends, your audience on your podcast, because, you know, it's not often that we have the technology to be able to so vividly and accurately record what happened in a decade. Do you know what I mean? Like real time. Um from our, we, like, it's hard for us to, like, we can archive it. We don't need some big news organization or some big company to do it for us. We can archive this stuff with our own, on our own social media pages. Do you know what I mean? So anyway, I just thought this was interesting and I hope you didn't think it was too boring. Anyway, um, that is it for now. Thank you so much for listening today. Um, be sure to rate me on all the, the, the platforms, um, that you listen to this show on Pocket Cast, Castbox, uh, Player FM, Spotify, Apple Music, or Apple uh, Apple Podcast and Google Play, and um, yeah, just leave me favorable ratings on those because again, that's how you're going to help people know about the show. Share an episode with somebody that you care about or you think that would be interested in what I have to say, or in this episode or any other episode. Um, In the show notes, you can also click uh, to send me a message about what you thought about any of these topics that I talked about today. Um, Any of these influential moments, anything you think I might have missed that was culturally relevant to black folk, especially black Americans and definitely across the diaspora. I really want to hear that. Um, Yeah, you can leave me a message. You don't have to download a thing in the world. Just click the button and you'd be good. Um, You can also click the link to my um, anchor.fm page and While you're on my page, you can donate if you want to. Um, Even 99 cents will be a helpful contribution. But again, if you don't want to donate, just share. Share the podcast. Share an episode because that's how you're going to help me out. All right? Thank you so much for listening today. Until next time.